church. Well, it is good to be together good to be together with you again. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter two. Again, thank you for being such uh, a welcoming and hospitable church. Uh, it's been such a joy to be able to fellowship with you and uh, to play some small part in, uh, in serving you and, and hopefully uh, participating in the discipleship that happens here week in and week out. Uh, but I am grateful for you. Uh, Grace, EB Free, where I'm from, is grateful, grateful for you. Our elders prayed for you this morning, and we're excited for this next season of life and ministry that's going to occur uh, as you welcome your new pastor. But before he comes, I, I, I want you to know that what I've seen over the past several months um, since you guys have had a lead or senior pastor in this role um, ha- has been something that I think honors the Lord. Uh, you are in good hands because you have one another. And I think this new pastor is going to find himself blessed for having you be the ones who he has the pleasure to serve. You know, the Bible has this concept, this idea called the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers essentially says that the, the people of God aren't separated into the paid professionals and then the laity, and the paid professionals do all the work, and then the laity, the, the regular people, uh, they, they just receive that. Uh, instead, the Bible says that some people play important, significant roles in the formal ministry of the gospel. People like elders, uh, which you have, um, lead pastors, for instance, deacons. But the Bible also says by virtue of the blood of Jesus, we are all made competent ministers of the gospel. We can all minister the gospel to one another. And so no one who is in Christ is exempt from being a minister, uh, one who uh, preaches and applies and wrestles through the word and does the one another's that the Bible calls us to. And that may be a concept that's near and dear to your heart. You may be fully on board with that and have wrestled through that together, or maybe not. But what I've seen in this church is you exemplifying that glorious doctrine. You love one another. Uh, You've hung in there with one another through uh, times where I'm sure you've, you've had questions or wondered about what's next through COVID, um, somehow you've been able to, to endure, and that's because the Spirit is in your midst, God is doing something here, and because you've loved one another. And so I commend you, and, and I look forward to seeing how the Lord's going to be working in this next chapter. Well, uh, we are going to be in Acts chapter 2 today. Um, before we begin, have you ever seen a public marriage proposal by any chance? You maybe haven't seen one yourself, but you've seen viral videos, no doubt, of public marriage proposals that happen at ball games or uh, some flash mob that happens out in downtown L.A. These things always make me nervous. Uh, I struggle pretty mightily with secondhand embarrassment. Um, 
I don't know if you guys are that way as well, but, and I, I am inconsistent in that. Sometimes I could laugh along at things, but other times when I see people put themselves in vulnerable or awkward positions, I just die a little bit on the inside. And in those marriage proposals, what always happens is, is I don't know that people have the same sort of question-asking philosophy that I have where those big questions are concerned. See, I want to know the answer before I ask that question, but I don't really trust some of these folks. And so when they you know, are on the jumbotron and they've been down to ask their, their girlfriend to marry them, I think, have you done the requisite you know, searching to know that she's going to say yes, or are you about to embarrass yourself in front of 20,000 people? And, and then what will happen is they bend down and they ask that question, and then there's a pause. And it's got to feel like the longest pause in the world, right? And maybe some of you who've asked uh, someone to marry you before have felt that, that slight pause, but, but there's a tension that, that hangs in the air. And what you hope, uh, if assuming we, these are good relationships, is that, is that she'll say yes, right? That's, that's what that tension feels like. Well, that tension is what I have in mind this morning. That tension is what we are going to uh, see and then see the consequence of in Acts chapter 2. What we're going to be considering today is a, is a question. What is God doing through the gospel word? What is God doing through the gospel word? Uh, there's something really formational happening at the beginning of the, the formation of the church in Acts. And God is doing something through the gospel word, through the proclamation of the gospel. And uh, right off the bat, we see a very tense moment uh, where, where s- some words hang in the air. And we're going to see how God works through those words. Uh, let me pray and we will dive in. Father. Thank you for gathering us together today by your wisdom and your might. And I pray now, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see as we go to you and your word. Uh, We pray that this would be a worshipful time uh, where you receive glory and where we find ourselves blessed in your care. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Acts chapter 2. What is God doing through the gospel word? He is giving his spirit. God is giving the spirit. So follow along with me as I read verses 37 through 38. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So to understand our point, God is giving the Spirit. That's what he's doing through the proclamation of the gospel word. We need to understand the context of this passage. So I was here a little less than a month ago, and we uh, considered the beginning of Acts chapter 2. And if you were here with us, then you might remember that, that the... Uh, Jesus' followers gathered together in a small room. The, the Spirit came and it filled these followers of Jesus and they hit the streets. And they went out and they proclaimed the gospel. And, and God was at work. And, and many people, it seemed, 
uh, were open and receptive to that gospel word, and some weren't. But nevertheless, the Spirit was doing something that, that, um, that caused them to stand up and boldly proclaim Jesus and his mighty deeds. Well, what happened next? Peter stood up and seemingly representing the rest of the apostles, he gave a sermon. And it was quite the sermon. But at the heart of that sermon was the gospel. The, the very clear, the very explicit gospel. Peter, Peter told his listeners about Jesus and Jesus' true identity as testified to by signs and miracles. And he told them Jesus was delivered to be crucified. But Jesus rose to life. And being resurrected from the grave, he was of all. The gospel message was proclaimed to these people. Peter confronted his listeners. The one that, that God has made both Lord and Christ, you crucified. You killed him. And then he, he lets that sit. And that's that tension. So Peter stands up and he, he boldly proclaims the gospel. He preaches to all of these Jewish people who gather from near and far. And he says, the one that God has made both Lord and Christ, you killed him. And so what happens? That's that tension, right? That, that, that's that moment where the person kneels down and they, they say, hey, will you marry me? And we all wait. We're trying to figure out what's going to happen. Is God going to do something in this? Or is, are these people going to stone Peter? They're going to call him crazy? How is the church going to be formed through this very early proclamation of the gospel? Well, verse 37, our passage. How is that tension resolved? The people are cut to the heart. They're cut to the heart. What happens when Peter proclaims the gospel? The people who hear are cut to the heart. We have to hear that and understand that. What does the word do? What does the gospel word do? It pierces. It divides. It cuts, right? The, the scriptures over and over again testify to this incredible idea that among other things, what happens when we proclaim the gospel is that, that the gospel word produces faith. It ignites faith in People. And that's why a passage like Hebrews 10 will say that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so that's why proclaiming the gospel, why preaching the word is so important. Because otherwise, how will people have faith? How will people believe? And so that's what we need to realize here before we realize anything else. Peter's hearers hear the gospel and through the gospel message, God acts to cut their hearts. He does something inside of them to make them aware of their problem and their need for a solution. And so there's this faithful response. And they say these wonderful words, what shall we do? What shall we do? If you ever uh, are proclaiming the gospel to someone and they say, what should I do? That's a good spot to have them in. That's a great response that you want to hear. What must I do to be saved? I realize that there is a problem. I realize there's something wrong with my heart. What do I need to do to make myself right with God? So something's going on at a heart level. Now what Peter says, repent and be baptized. 
Repent and be baptized. First, he calls them to repent. And, and, and I think when, when Peter calls them to repent, he's saying, believing in Jesus, believing in Jesus, turn away from your sinful way of life, believing in Jesus, renounce your old way of life, and turn to Jesus. And be baptized, too. Be baptized, too. Now, this may be curious for some of us. I'm not quite sure uh, what sort of teaching you guys have done on baptism and sort of the awareness of baptism here uh, at this church, but, but baptism can be an odd thing for many of us. It, it could strike us as this sort of strange ritual that is unique to the church. And some of us that grew up with this, maybe some of us had to explain later that when you trust Christ, you should be baptized, but, but why would we have people be dunked down into water as something significant and vital to the life of the church. It's odd. It, it doesn't save people. Protestants, we say that emphatically. It doesn't save people. So why would we do it? It's not this magic wand. So, so what's going on here? But why would Peter call his listeners to baptism? Here, Baptism, very simply, is an outward reflection of an inward heart turn that takes place in repentance. In baptism, the people would declare, I'm being buried with Christ, and it's into Him that I'm being baptized, and it's in Him that I'm being raised to walk in a new way. And so in baptism, we uniquely identify with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We say, His death is my death. And his life is my life. I'm on his team. And so baptism would become a rite of initiation for Christians to enter into the church. And this was especially true in the early church. And this has been true throughout the history of the church. In our day, when you can just go to a church down the street, baptism doesn't seem outwardly as vital to belonging to a church as it formerly did, but there are still places all across the world where to be baptized really costs you something and can actually uh, lead to you being um, forsaken by your family, kicked out of communities, or even being at risk of physical persecution. Baptism is a big deal because it says, I'm with Jesus and with his people. And so through baptism, the church welcomes people into their midst. And so, Believing in Jesus, repent. Now, publicly declare your repentant belief in Jesus through baptism. What's the result of all of this? If Peter's listeners respond to this gospel call, and they respond to this initiation in faith, and they respond, what's the result? Verse 38, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Through the gospel word, God is giving his spirit to his people. So the big point in all of this is the end result. It's, it's where we finish. God gives the spirit. That's the truth that I want you to walk away from our time together this morning with. Through the gospel being proclaimed, God gives his spirit. So, so that's the takeaway. But a passage like this raises some important questions for us. For instance, us Protestants, we uh, declare, we hold to the idea that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, that's part of the formula that we work up and that we hold to. And given that to be the case, does what we just read 
contradict the glorious truth that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It seems like Acts 2 is actually saying that we're saved by works. Because in order to be saved, we have to repent. And in order to be saved, we have to be baptized, which could seem like a type of work. So if these aren't done well enough, or if these aren't done with enough faith, if these are done and out of order, then are we actually right with God? Those are important questions that are worth considering. So let's, let's think about it for a moment. This idea of repentance. Is repentance a work? No. Now, we need to understand something about repentance, especially in these formulas like here in Acts chapter 2 when, when Peter is calling his listeners to repent and believe. It's a formula in order to know God. There's an interesting grammar thing happening here. So this is uh, called a synecdoche, synecdoche, okay? So it's, an, so it's a grammar thing here. And what this word is, is it's basically saying that uh, a part is representing the whole. A part is representing the whole. So when Peter says repent, he's not merely saying repent. This is something that we, we use when we talk. We use this kind of grammatical tool all the time. It's sort of like saying, lend me your ears. When I say lend me your ears, do I mean like only, only pay attention with your ears? Or we're, we're actually saying, no, pay attention with your entire self, right? Like really, really lean in here and understand what I'm trying to say. If I ask my wife for her hand in marriage, am I saying, I, I only really value your hand? Or am I saying, no, I, I want you, you, all of you to be my wife. Uh, if, you, if you start to pay attention, you'll start to notice that these things, these synecdoches are all over Scripture. So, for instance, the cross is an important one. So when we say, uh, preach the cross, we, we don't mean to say that, that all we will ever, ever preach as a Christian is that Jesus died on the cross. If that is our entire gospel, then that is going to be an anemic gospel because as part of the gospel, we recognize Jesus' life and his ministry, and his death, and his resurrection. And I would add his ascension as well. And so, so we see this kind of thing happening all the time in Scripture. And repentance, this, this formula is part of that. Faith and repentance are so connected, interconnected in the Bible, that it's impossible to repent and not do so in faith. It's impossible to have faith and not repent. All faith is penitent faith, and all repentance is believing repentance. So when Peter says repent, he's saying believing in Jesus, embrace the flip side of the coin of faith and repent of your sins. And so know this, church, if you believe in Jesus, you will repent of your sin. If you believe in Jesus, you will repent of your sin. Not perfectly. Not perfectly. Not one of us will nail that equation this side of heaven, but Christians are people who believe in Jesus and forsake their sin and seek to continually turn to Jesus and pursue his life rather than living for their sin. What about baptism, though? Uh, do I have to be baptized to receive the Spirit and salvation? No, the Bible gives examples of those who know God and uh, have uh, an eternal relationship with him despite never having been baptized. The biggest example of that is the thief on the cross. Nevertheless, the New Testament does not understand non-baptized Christians. 
that there's just no category for a Christian who doesn't think of baptism as important and as a thing to be pursued. That's just sort of a brain twister to the logic of the New Testament. If you believe in Jesus, your fundamental loyalties and and your way of life are so different and are so changed up that you would obviously publicly identify yourself with him. And so, so, so Peter is saying, publicly identify yourself with Jesus. He is the Lord of all. He's the, he's the king of glory. Get, get in the boat with him. Let him be your master. Uh, wave the flag of Christ Jesus. And so what do we do here? Recognizing that God is still giving his spirit through the gospel word, we rejoice. What, what this passage is indicating for us today is that a new era has dawned. And when people believe in Jesus, which means that they will repent of their sin, which means that they will publicly identify with Jesus through things like baptism and be received into the church, God is giving his spirit. And so if you've believed in Jesus today, then you too have received his spirit. You you don't have to wait for some some magical, uh, super special moment to happen for the spirit to come. No, when we believe in Jesus, God gives the gift of his Holy Spirit. And so we rejoice in that. We, we, We praise God for that. When we sing these songs of sung worship, we sing out in holy praise and adoration because God has given us himself. The paraclete, the helper, the one who will lead us into all truth, the one who will convict us of sin, the one who will maintain us as we go about this Christian life. We praise God for that. And we also recognize that not only is God giving us his spirit by grace through faith, but this same spirit is now made available or accessible to our families, to our children. To our parents, our siblings, our neighbors, and, and, and even our enemies, and people all across this world. We can be a part of the Spirit going out and doing something incredible through gospel proclamation. And so we rejoice and we participate in this grand narrative. At the same time, we also take Peter's instruction to his listeners to heart. Most of us in this room have claimed to, be, claimed to have believed in Jesus. So we are in Christ. That, that means that we should be people who have the Spirit. Um, that means we should be people who repent. We have made a clean break with the world and we're seeking to live in light of that day by day with God's gracious help. We won't do it perfectly, but whenever we find ourselves living for ourselves, living for the flesh, living for the world, living, having placed anything other than God on that mantle of worship in our lives, we repent. In faith, we turn to Jesus And we do that again and again and again until Christ calls us home or he returns. And this process will give way to everlasting glory where sin is no more. Some of us probably need to take account of our lives when we consider passages like this. These passages invite us to consider are there 
areas of our lives that we ought to be repenting of. We're, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper in just a little bit. And part of the Lord's Supper says that we should take it in a worthy manner. Uh, not making a lifestyle of sin, not having pet sins that we refuse to deal with because they're too significant or too dear to us. No, no, no. We renounce those things. And in faith, we turn to Jesus. And so we search ourselves. We consider ourselves. And one of the key ways we do this is through baptism. In baptism, we're given the incredible opportunity to express our belief in Jesus publicly. We get to declare our loyalty to Jesus publicly. In his name, we go into the waters and we are raised having identified with Christ to to walk in newness of life. And so... Not only that, but we get to participate in the rite that serves as an initiation to the church. And so in doing this, we get to take God's word seriously and we get to experience the joy of having our salvation pressed further into our hearts. Or if we're watching people be baptized, we get the joy of seeing their salvation being pressed further into their hearts. And then we get to remember that God saves sinners and gives them his spirit. And so one of my big hopes for you as a church is that baptisms would abound. Whether that be because you uh, have not been baptized and, and you take God's word seriously and you say, hey, this is what Christians do. And so let me talk with the elders. Let me talk with the new pastor who's coming and, and let's, let's get this thing going. I want to publicly identify with Jesus and his followers through baptism. Or, or maybe it's you continually being invigorated and renewed by God's word and his gospel word in particular, go out in confidence and proclaim Jesus so that others might be cut to the heart, so that others might believe in Jesus, so that others might receive life and the forgiveness of sins, and so they too might publicly identify with Christ and his church by going into the waters of baptism. I I, I hope and I pray that this next season will be one where you see this over and over and over again, and your faith is nourished, and other people are welcomed into the church as a result. And so this is what's happening here in the beginning of the early church and the life of the church here in Acts 2. God is doing something through the gospel. He's giving his spirit. But he's doing more as well. And so what is God initiating in people through baptism? I think it's a question to consider. God is gathering his people into local churches. God's gathering his people into local churches. So God is giving his spirit and he's gathering his people into local churches. Um, read with me verse 42. It's an incredibly uh, significant and well-known verse. Verse 42 And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It's hard to overstate the the importance of this verse. Uh, This is one of those verses that has massive implication for the church and has had massive implication for the church for the past 2,000 years. And it's instructive for us this morning. In this verse, we see the gospel word, God, uh, that through the gospel word, God is organizing his people into identifiable 
local churches where they can experience him, knowing him, enjoying him, and bring him glory. I want to say that one more time. In this verse, we see that through the gospel word, God is organizing his people into identifiable local churches where they can experience him, knowing him, enjoying him, and bring him glory. So, Peter preaches this incredible sermon. Uh, at the heart of that is the gospel. Uh, people say, what should we do? Peter uh, calls them to repent and, and be baptized. In other words, he says, believe in Jesus. And what happens? About 3,000 people received the gift of the Spirit. In other words, 3,000 people were saved. And then what? Did they just go about their lives? They're like, well, that was a really weird day. I'm just going to uh, go home and make some food, uh, watch some, some uh, TV on my uh, TV that ha- won't be invented for 2,000 more years. No, they, they did something. They committed themselves to something. They persistently and continually gave themselves to something. They became occupied with something. They devoted themselves to something. What? First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In these days, Jesus' apostles were literally teaching Christians. And so if we were to take our cues from the sermons of the book of Acts, then we can glean that the apostles taught Christ. And they taught the mighty deeds of Christ. They taught about Jesus' identity as Christ and Lord. They taught about his life and his ministry, the wonders and signs, and how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus and was fulfilled in Jesus. They taught about how he was crucified, how he was resurrected, and how he, ascend, was ex, how he ascended to the right hand of the Father and is exalted now forever. So they taught, and the people devoted themselves to these teachings. Second, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. These new followers of Jesus recognized that when they received the Spirit, something supernatural happened within them where they were united to Christ and united to one another. Both of those things happened. And so they were united together and they were knit together in a unique way. In other words, they had fellowship. It's that rich Bible word uh, where, where... essentially means they had unity together. And and this happened through the gospel word. Through the gospel word, God is changing their hearts and changing their attitudes and changing their dispositions towards one another so that there is a rich and intimate relationship that can abound. So they devoted themselves to the fellowship and then they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. In these days, new believers would eat together. They would share a meal together. And this was a regular part of the fellowship. But as they gathered and as they ate, the centerpiece of their meal was the Lord's Supper. And when they came together, they would take time where they would break bread and they would drink wine, remembering Christ's death and proclaiming Christ's death until he returns again. And so it was a ceremonial aspect to these meals. And finally, they devoted themselves to the prayers. These new converts prayed. They prayed organized, liturgical prayers. They prayed as they felt led. They prayed in their their prayer closet. They prayed. 
And they prayed and they prayed at home in the temple. When they got together, it was just a part of the air that they breathed. What we're seeing in these verses is the organization of the early church. The organization of the early church. You've got 3,000 new Christians. And if you just put them all together and said, okay, figure it out, it, it, it would not go well. These 3,000 new Christians are saved from their sin and they're saved and baptized into something. Something identifiable. Something that they can, that they can hold on to. The church. Uh, this makes me think of Hume Lake Christian camps. Uh, do, are any of you familiar with Hume Lake by any chance? So uh, the church that... Uh, that I'm at, Grace EV Free, every year uh, we take a, a whole bunch of students up to Hume Lake Christian Camps, which is up in Sequoia National Park. And the way it works is, is we'll uh, make sure some information goes out to parents and we'll say, hey, do you want to go to Hume Lake with us? And, and if parents want to send their kids to Hume Lake, they'll register. And when they register, they provide some information. So what age is your child? What grade is your child? Uh, gender? Um, health concerns, uh, dietary restrictions, things like that. And so then we'll send this group of students up to Hume Lake. And two very important things happen as soon as they get to camp. The first is they're organized into two large teams. And so these big two large teams uh, Every single student will be put into one or the other. And so they're massive. They're like 600-person teams. And throughout the course of the week, these two large teams are going to compete against each other in different games. So they'll play lots of big games. And at the end of the week, they'll announce that one of the teams was the winner. And everybody cheers, and it's lots and lots of fun. But uh, that's kind of madness at the same time. I mean, these are massive teams. Uh, the, the loyalty to those teams is, is kind of generic, you know, like people don't really know the personalities of all the different people that are around. They just kind of know red team or blue team. And so they cheer for the red team. They cheer for the blue team. But the second thing that happens is, is teams are then broken up into sub teams, these smaller teams. And, and, and so the people at Hume, there's this organizing principle where they take all that information, um, people's age, people's grade, their gender, um, uh, their at relative athletic ability, and they, t- they combine these different group or people into groups, and, and they're smaller, they're identifiable. They're, again, there's an organizing principle, and these teams they get together, and in them, some of their personality is able to come out, and they come up with cheers, and they compete together as these smaller groups, and some of them are feisty, and some of them are more laid back, and some of them are really loud, and some of them are really athletic, but, but you see something of their personality in these groups. I think that's kind of like the idea that we see here in the book of Acts. 3,000 people were saved. They were baptized into the church. Through the gospel, God is now organizing his people into the church. But not just the church. Uh, not, not just the, the universal church. Not just the visible church. He's organizing them into identifiable local churches. Well, what do I mean by that? These churches are identifiable. They're marked by particular things. They're marked by a devotion to the apostles' teaching. To the fellowship 
to the Lord's Supper, and to praying together. These four pillars, as they have often been called, become the identifiable marks of what it means to be the church. So if you aren't devoted to these things, there's a good chance then you are, then you are not part of an actual church. You're devoted to something other than the church. The church is more than these things, but it's not less than these things. And so, at the same time, these are local churches. So local churches. Well, what do I mean by that? These Christians didn't just become lumped into a giant pot of other Christians. They were sorted into smaller groups where there was a knowledge of one another, where there, where there was an understanding of one another. And so it's like these big and small groups that happen at Hume Lake. Christians are saved into membership of the big group, but then they're organized into the smaller groups as well. That's the ideal. That's what it's supposed to be. And so that's why things like leaders and elders in these smaller groups become so significant. It helps identify what the smaller groups are. So, what do we do with this? There are two things I really want you to wrestle with. First, this is the pattern. We all know Christians who confessed faith, who confess faith in Christ, but they aren't a part of the church. Does that work? Is that okay? I wouldn't go so far to say that these people do not know Jesus. That, that would be taking it a step too far and making uh, participation in church a qualification or a work that must be carried out for us to know God. Nevertheless, it is a dangerous proposition. It's dangerous. According to the New Testament, it just doesn't make sense for Christians to not be a part of the church. It would, again, be like a non-baptized Christian. There's just no category for that sort of thing in the Bible. The expectation is that people who are saved are baptized into membership within the church, and, and, and that ought to be done in a local church. And so this is your call than to prioritize your membership within this local church. For one reason or another, God has, in his wisdom and in his might, gathered you together, and he could have put you any number of places. There's lots of great churches around here, but he's brought you here. First Baptist Church of Hacienda Heights, so that these would be your people. These would be the people who you're to carry out those one another's with. The, the elders of this church are the elders that you are called to submit to. And, and elders, these are the people that you're called to lead and to pray for and do the ministry of the word for. And so, and so you might be here for one more day or you might be here for the next 20 or 30 years of your life. Regardless of how you fit into that, this is where you are. And so what we see over and over again in the Bible is this idea that we ought to grow where we are planted. So dig in here. Prioritize this gathering where the word is preached, where fellowship happens, where communion takes place and where prayers are offered to the Lord. Dig in here. Grow here. Prioritize your membership in this local church. Second, be devoted to the things that make the church a church. What the early church devoted themselves to has become the pattern for us today. Just like the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, so do we. 
That's why you preach every single Sunday. That's why we're doing what we're doing right now. It's not like we just became so enamored 2,000 years ago with the idea of some person standing on a stage and and talking about the Bible that we just decided that we're going to do that forever. No, we're actually trying to stay true to what the Scriptures call us to do, to devote ourselves to the apostles' teachings which are contained in the Bible. And so we preach. Um, We uh, we stand upon the authority of the Bible. We also devote ourselves to fellowship, to experiencing the unity that we have as a result of our shared knowledge of Jesus. We seek to love one another and to care for one another. We give ourselves to the Lord's Supper like we're going to be doing in just a few moments, something the church has done faithfully and consistently for 2,000 plus years. So we continue this tradition in obedience to Christ's commands and we'll do so until he returns. And finally, we, we pray. We pray and we pray. We pray those beautiful pastoral prayers. We pray, pray prayers of confession. We pray prayers of assurance from up front. And we go home and we pray. We pray for our families. We pray for our friends. We pray for the nations. We pray for Ukraine. We pray for Russia. And we pray and we pray and we pray. And so I urge you, become a devotee. Where you devote yourself to the things that the church has been called to devote itself to. And get in line with that and get to those things. Making those being priorities in your life. Don't just endure them. Don't let them be a, 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 a box to check off. Don't get so antsy that you move past these things. No, allow these things to continue to be the pillars that hold up the church. I want to close our time now with, with a shorter point, but nevertheless an important one, I believe. Uh, and it comes from verses 43 through 47. So I'm going to read this and then uh, make a few comments and we'll end our time together. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So what's the result of the new Christians devoting themselves to the pillars of the church? Through the gospel, God changed their affections And their actions, he changed their hearts towards one another and towards the world. That's what God is doing. Please don't let it ever be lost on us that God is doing something incredible through the church being the church. You know, in the the pastoral prayer we just considered, we talked about the church in Ukraine and the incredible light on a hill that the church in Ukraine is currently being. And are they doing that by being, just doing these crazy things? No, they're just being the church. It's in a unique setting, but they're devoting themselves to the exact same things the church has always devoted themselves through to. And through that, God is doing something incredible in their midst, and he's putting it on display for the entire world to see. Do you realize that, that the church began with this small group, and they devoted themselves to these simple things, and before too long... 2,000 years later, the, the, the gospel has expanded to where it now is known by billions of people. That's incredible. 
and, and it happened because the church was the church. And so when the church devotes themselves to these things, God changes hearts and changes affections. And it results in blessing for us and glory to God. A lot of people wonder if a passage like this, one that we just read, should become the pattern for how Christians ought to live today. I don't think that we should follow the script of verses 43 through 47 as if we are to do these exact same things. Uh, I don't think we should necessarily be selling all of our possessions and pooling them into a, a church pot where, where uh, distribution happens. And I can give a lot of reasons for that. Uh, and why I don't think this is a prescriptive command in Scripture, but for the sake of time, I won't. Instead, I think we need to see the main thing that is happening in these verses that we just read. God has worked to affect His people and change their actions. God has so captivated His people through the gospel and the ministry that occurs within the local church that they are now different people. They're willing to live in such a way where they are radically God-centered and radically others-focused. And that's going to look different depending on where you are, the age you're in. For Ukrainian church right now, that looks very specifically, that, that there's, a very, there's a specificity this ought to be lived out with. In Hacienda Heights, maybe it looks a little bit different. Maybe we ought to be pooling our, our resources, but that, that takes wisdom and that takes the Spirit's leading but the point, again, is that God has captivated his people, and as a result, they've oriented their entire lives around him. Doesn't that sort of vision for the Christian life sound incredible? Doesn't that sound like something that you can give yourself to? Well, this is what God can do. It's what he has done. It's what he's continuing to do. It, it may not look the exact same as it did 2,000 years ago, um, but nevertheless, God is at work, and he's at work in our midst. God's desire for us is that we would, would not stay the same and, and add a little bit of Jesus to our lives, but that knowing God, having believed in him, and trusted in him for salvation and for life everlasting, that we would lay our entire lives down and say, it's all yours, to do with as you will. And as we do that, God completely re remakes us. He changes us. He changes our hearts. He changes our minds. He causes us to live for him and to live for others. And so I, I urge you, let him do that. Lean in. I'm going to pray the Lord would do this in you, and especially in this next season of life. Father, thank you for this incredible church that you are at work in. Um, that you have been pleased to preserve according to your great might because your spirit is here in their midst. And Lord, now I pray that you cause them to continually devote themselves to these things that you have called your church to devote themselves to for thousands of years. Uh, the preaching of the word, uh, fellowship of the saints, the Lord's Supper, prayer. L Lord, I pray that as, as they do that in faithful dependence upon you, having your spirit with them, Lord, that they would flourish, not just in, in having a big budget or having lots of staff members, Lord, but they would grow in knowledge of Jesus, in intimacy with you, Lord. And, and as a result, they would uh, boldly proclaim Christ. They would rest in Christ. They would hope in Christ. They would love one another. Father, thank you for how you are so clearly working this sort of thing in this church, Lord. But I pray that you would continue and they would excel still more. 
And so would you go with them by your spirit, causing them to see your face um, or see your glory in the face of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.